Something has changed in the last five years, and demonstrably so. Small to medium-sized businesses are being targeted more and more. And why is that? Well, unlike the large organizations, small to medium businesses, they lack a full accompaniment of network defenses. So often they're unprepared when a nation state or APT decides to focus on them. A lot of SMBs do not have security operation centers or SOCs. They have IT contractors who can provision laptops and maintain a certain level of compliance and security. But if there's an advanced persistent threat lurking on one of the SMB networks, how would that organization even know? And if the threat were distributed through several SMBs? Again, how would any of them know? I've spoken before about managed service providers, or MSPs. They can provide that additional security remotely. I want to talk more about the privileged position that they are in when it comes to these larger threats. These virtual socks are providing greater visibility into these low-noise attacks on small and medium-sized organizations. And as my guest will say later in this podcast, these virtual socks, they're kind of like pet testing the internet. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I want to explore this world on how best to mitigate active threats against small organizations from the point of view of someone who sits inside a virtual sock. And how that affects cyber insurance. In episode 49, I talked with Huntress, a managed service provider that discovered the ransomware affecting customers of Kaseya. They were able to do so because they were plugged into a number of clients that were affected. And because they were plugged into those clients, they were able to limit the spread of that ransomware. There are a number of other managed service providers, such as the one we'll talk about today. Absolutely. My name is Chris Ray, and I'm the Vice President of Customer Success for DeepWatch. DeepWatch is a organization that started off primarily as a virtual SOC for our clients, specifically focusing on managed detection and response. Since that point in time, we've broadened ourselves out to cover more of the holistic security program, focusing at the perimeter security level, at the vulnerability management, risk management level, as well as our bread and butter, which was that security operations, detection, response, and immediate uh, action capability. A security operations center is something that all large organizations have. It's where the data from their endpoint sensors are collected, triaged, and analyzed. Most small organizations, well, they, they can't afford a dedicated SOC. And that's where having a SOC as a virtual entity or a managed service makes sense. All sizes of companies should be doing it for different reasons. Um, for some of the smaller companies, they simply don't have the personnel, the capability, the time. Um, I, I talk to customers regularly and have the conversation with them of, you don't necessarily want to spend the money and the time getting good at something that you really don't want to, don't need to get good at in the first place. And the end result of that being, not that you don't need to do it, but it may be something that's you know far easier to outsource to a, you know, a, a specialist provider in a way, and then you consume the outcomes. 
As you move into the mid-range companies, the same model happens. They have those security capabilities. Typically, they have a greater span of control across, across the platform and the industry as a whole. But even they need that additional help. Just a few years ago, the number of remote workers in an organization was few enough that IT departments could reasonably handle the individual situations. Today, in the post-COVID world, I work at All Remote Company, and it makes sense. We can hire the best people from around the world, and we're no longer limited to the local market. On the other hand, that means all of our remote equipment is potentially vulnerable to an attack. This has been exacerbated quite a bit from the COVID perspective. We're all aware of the talent shortage that we talk about and all these other kinds of issues. Your security operations profile is really it's your eyes and ears facing what the bad man or woman is trying to do to you from an organizational standpoint on the outside with global unrest and everything else. This, you know, we've got organizations that are being targeted in ways that they weren't necessarily even considering a couple of years back. So this rolls out to them. From the larger scale companies, a lot of the larger companies, they absolutely have the ability um, necessarily from a funding capability perspective or from a security program perspective to create their own, if you will. However, many of them are finding, again, there's there's a benefit from the perspective of having someone else who's doing this work that's specialized in that area. There's another advantage to having a virtual SOC. They see more than the traffic to your own organization. In other words, they can detect something that will be affecting others and prepare those organizations against an attack. I have the conversation with clients on a regular basis. Um, you're sitting by your campfire. You can tell me what color the flames are, how much it's popping, how much it's smoking and all that. But in the night, that's pretty much what you can see. Deep Watch, we have the benefit of being able to sit about 100 yards higher than you and look out across this field of campfires and trend the information and bring it together. So what verticals stand out as customers for a virtualized SOC? There are a lot of organizations who, back to the previous comment of don't try to do what you don't want to do. Um, that's fed out a lot, as well as just highly regulated uh, organizations, critical infrastructure organizations, things like that, that need to have that visibility. If I had to say who are some of my most common ones, um, finances or financial systems, um, those are always large. They're heavily regulated. They tend to be widely spread and expanded. My healthcare is always going to be one. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a vertical healthcare and education, both where you have large amounts of very sensitive information, but not necessarily the budgets to secure it effectively. Um, and we're starting to see more and more, you know, uh, you read about supply chain failures left, right and sideways these days. And that's not just physical supply chain. That's also on the virtual supply chain. So from software, media, everything else of that nature, you're starting to see a lot of those organizations invest more heavily in this retraction perspective because, again, they have so much to watch and it's so difficult to be great at it. That's where even if they're still doing it themselves, they are definitely looking for partners who can help them cover in the areas where, you know, their capability may not be quite as uh, hard and fast as it should be. So other people can help cover for any inherited or undeveloped as of yet sins that may exist. And then there's the future. The future attacks that will be faster and more focused on specific organizations. And we're also on the cusp of chat GPTs on everyone's terms. Well, that's an example of AI. AI will be used maliciously, but AI is also going to be incorporated at a much higher level into the defensive operations to the point where mistakes, attacks, and defenses are all occurring at machine speed, and it's going to be a continued equalizer. So 
Yeah, we talked a lot about a lot of things that are kind of terrifying, but at the same time, all of this is driving innovation. And that's kind of the history of the human race. We find a problem, we move past it so we can find the next problem. Um, but, you know, it's catching up. And this is all being driven from a financial and capability perspective and everything else. To your point, scary times. You know, pick me a time when things aren't spooky. The point being now that the world is becoming smaller and it's forcing people to converge on their actions as opposed to handle things. We really can't balkanize things anymore. We can't just, you know, bust things up into small parts and say, this is my world. Because again, the internet's a pen test and we're all in this together. So. So if Chris is actively monitoring the threat landscape, does this mean that he looks at configuration and updates and other issues as well? You know, when we're talking from the perspective of security, uh, cyber insurance and other things of that nature, of having an external set of eyes, of having an EDR capability that's being done by a professional organization to make that easier for them, as well as from the perspective of the SEC, you know, some of the requirements they're coming down with and just the awareness that people want in general, having a partner who this is what they do. They have a broader spectrum of visibility than necessarily you would as an organization. They see hundreds of organizations, not just that yours. Um, this also helps them out. So there's really not a one size fits all. The general assumption on this is that more and more people are doing it for any number of reasons to include the ones you know, we just talked about. Okay. Cybersecurity insurance. I, I know it's a controversial topic. I mean, should you do it? Should you not? Well, I mean, depending on who you talk to, there's a very large expectation that within a couple of years, a significant number of countries in the world are going to come back with what are the requirements and how you play with it. Should you do it or should you not? Um, that's a, it's like any insurance policy. If you don't, you're going to have to be able to explain why, and you're going to have to be explain why you as an organization, your internal capabilities meet or exceed the coverage that you would otherwise be provided as part of the result of a cyber insurance policy. Um, cyber insurance as a whole is modifying, it's changing heavily. Um, it started off, it was pretty easy to get it. Um, you fill out a one page piece of paper and you get cyber insurance. Then 2020, 2021, the first part of 2022 happened, ransomware went wild, and so many of the cyber insurance companies, they were reeling. They were against the ropes and struggling because the payouts written against what were initially rather loose policies um, turned into continuous conflict points. Um, we're seeing that changing. Uh, some in the latter half of 2022, ransomware actually kind of appears to be flattening off. My, my personal belief on that is um, that that's not going to last. Um, it's a false indicator. Um, losses are down, but severity's up. So, yes, there's not as many, but the ones that are hitting are there. Um, double extortion is going to continue. If you're familiar with that entire concept of not only am I going to threaten you from a ransomware perspective, but I'm going to exfil all your data in the first place. So I'm going to hit you. If you don't want me to lock your system up, I'm going to charge you once. And then, oh, by the way, pay me again so I don't dump this on a WikiLeaks or something somewhere like that. Um, ransomware as a service is a thing now. Um, there's money to be made. Someone will make it. Um, so all in all, 
you know, I'd like to say there's a dip, which might have caused people to question whether or not cyber insurance was necessary. It's not really a dip. Like I said, I, I believe it's a false positive. And on top of that, social engineering woes are growing. That's becoming more and more of a, you know, fraudulent payments, just all these other things. So where there's a gap, the pieces pick up. So with all that said, do I see cyber insurance going away? No. It's interesting where ransomware is subsiding that other forms of attacks are rushing in. It's not like data breaches are going away. No, they're shifting. And, and those nuances are being noted by the insurance industry. Here's the, here's the golden carrot. Um, as ransomware has dipped down a little bit, that's given a lot of the professional insurance organizations a chance to get their underwriting set up better. We're actually seeing, as opposed to what's been the rather geometric rate of increase on cost and the opposite side curve with regards to what they want to cover, um, the insurance organizations have had a chance to do what they do, which is let's, you know, let's get all of our actuaries in the room and find out where we're making money, where we're losing money, what we can do better, how we can get this going. So the underwriting processes are becoming easier. Um, that all being said, that's going to make it harder for smaller companies to enter the market, but it will it's kind, of like, it's kind of like case law. As more and more people do this and show that they're doing it well, that will enable that. That is more than likely going to increase competition in the market, which will lower prices. But um, the days of a blanket policy that covers everything, those are gone. Um, policies are getting easier to underwrite. They are getting easier to bring out, but they're becoming more and more specific as to exactly what they cover. That's an interesting scenario. Say you have something that's clearly in critical infrastructure, maybe even life critical, and you can't have it fall victim to a ransomware attack. So maybe the government steps in and makes it easier for that organization to get insurance. Um, one of the other questions that you know has been a big one in the last year or so is, should the government come in and subsidize, subsidize and establish a base insurance capability? And that's extremely rife of conflict as well, because if I, as the government, come out similar to FEMA or some other organization like that, where I'm putting that in play and say, all companies, I'm giving you the ability to, at a low cost, get $150,000 worth of cyber insurance. Yay, we're all good. But that then also lets me know as a malicious user, as a attacker, if you will, that every mom and pop out there has $150,000 that they can spend on me. Oh, right. That would be a good idea if the criminals knew they were going to get a minimum payout from these organizations. Now you're kind of putting a price on all the covered entities. Still, they need to be covered somehow. So in an effort to make more people covered, I'm potentially also increasing the attack service. Maybe I don't need to go after Fortune 100. There's been a lot of discussion about companies that are hesitant to call something a nation state attack when it was because the company does that. It absolves the insurance company from paying out. Well, it's, it's a that's a two edged sword. Um, you've got companies on both sides saying this. You've got insured companies saying, because one of the things that's coming out with cyber insurance now is you have to prove to me that you're doing good security work. You have to show to me that you're using multi-factor authentication, that you're doing vulnerability scanning and mitigation, that you're hardening, your, that you're aligning to a framework, whatever. These are becoming, um, like I said, the day of the one-page application is done. Um, now it's, here's war and peace. Fill it out at your leisure. 
Um, so you've got some of the companies who are covered who will absolutely throw their hands up and say, there's no way you could have expected me to cover for this. I'm a little company that makes $1.2 million a year to block this. I would have had to spend a million of that just on cybersecurity. That makes no sense. That's why I have insurance. Okay. Uh, makes perfect sense. The insurers, on the other hand, turn around and say, this policy was to protect someone who makes $1.2 million. Um, this was not a policy for a nation state target. So thank you for admitting that this was a nation state actor because that just disqualified you from me owing you any payout or significantly reduced it. I don't, I'm not trying to make anyone out to be a villain in either case. These are, this is the business model, but again, it shows where there's a lot of squishy ground all around this. This is a very new industry. Um, you know, we're talking a couple of years old and like any Financial decision. I make the joke that security, cybersecurity people, we're newcomers of this space. Financial security, they've been doing this since the first person decided to try and float a bowl of rice across a river somewhere, you know, in the cradle of civilization to sell in a neighboring village. Actuaries have so much data that they can play with. With regards to our world, we're still, we're still very new. We're in our infancy and data is proliferating at a rate that it never has before, which should give us greater intelligence as to how to play the game. But that data proliferation is also advancing capabilities, both offensive and defensive at rates we've never seen. So um, enjoy. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a conflict rich environment. Chris provides a unique viewpoint, able to see situations around the world. We talked a little bit about Ukraine and how they're able to defend themselves against Russia's attacks. What about China? What about Taiwan's defense from China? Um, that entire China-Taiwan scenario, that's a nightmare scenario for pretty much everyone involved in any kind of a situation. Um, it's very interesting um, when you look at what we've got going on right now. Um, the Russia-Ukraine scenario, although it's let's not downplay the lives that it's affecting and the strife that it's causing and the economic damage and everything else. But it is amazingly enough staying in this one little localized area and everyone almost has the ability to treat this like it's a case study. I'm going to give some weapons here. I'm going to apply a little bit of money here. I'm going to give some support here. What effect does that have? It's almost like we're doing a global, global economics case study as to what happens and how it happens. Um, China is absolutely watching this because, well, the invasion is not going the way that everyone expected it to go. The support by Western nations, well, more than Western, the support by nations back in Ukraine right now, um, it's a very interesting indicator of what countries are willing to do. China invaded Taiwan. It's not just going to be Taiwan that they're going to be facing. And for example, in this case, you know, the United States has come straight out and said they are a military ally. Um, we will help protect them. Um, that's no one in the West has held their hand up to the Ukraine and said, we're rolling in, open the door, we're coming to help out. Um, there's there's significant differences. So I'm sure, without a doubt, China is putting a large amount of interest into what's happening. How's it rolling out? What is the the feel of the people back home, how far are they willing to support this? You know, all of those aspects, that's something that they are. There are hundreds of doctoral thesis papers that are being written right now, I am certain, regarding all this because it's a freebie. They're getting to watch the modern 
global perspective on how something like this can be dealt with um, and use that to guide their own actions. I mentioned geopolitical conflicts because I've been hearing that the model might be that you go in with cyber to reduce the amount of kinetic force. Which has been very interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people expected Russia to have more of a cyber capability um, than they did. China has it. Let us not equivocate about that at all. They absolutely have it. Um, And is it a thing... The cyber realm enables me to strike at people that I would never be able to fire a bullet at. I will give you an example. Um, let's go back to 9-11 and the chaos that happened in New York. Cool. What would have happened if a malicious crime group uh, would have been part of that and they would have turned the phone numbers for all emergency services lines into, I don't know, uh, help desk lines for washing machines? Mm-hmm. What would have, what imagine the level of chaos is the infrastructure components which are here to protect you suddenly were completely unavailable. That's not out of the realm of capability and possibility. Imagine what would happen if we were facing an invasion and suddenly someone is getting into critical infrastructure and water is not flowing. There's no gas. My toilets don't work. There's supply chain issues and I can't get food into the grocery stores. I can be fighting a war in Europe and have someone completely attack our infrastructure inside the United States, which is something historically that's kept us rather safe from a world war perspective. The world wars have typically been fought in the European theater or Eastern Asian theater. Um, But what if they can come home? And that's the one thing that cyber lets us do is I can follow you anywhere because We're talking milliseconds from a jump across the ocean. I don't need to put people on the ground. I've got people sitting right here who can be there as quick as I can think about it. So it's it's real. Um, We are seeing the first conflict where openly cyber warfare is being engaged. But to your point, it's a lot less than I think where many of us expected to be. It's giving rise to some horrifying concepts they're weaponizing they're weaponizing people at home. I mean, you saw this where Anonymous was basically saying, tell me who you are and what your skills are. I'll find a way to put you in a cohort and you can strike back against the bad guy. You are taking non-military people, large amounts of skill. You're politicizing and enabling that as a weapon of war. Wow, that's a, that's a big step. And why should we expect that to stop? One of the side effects of the Russian-Ukraine conflict is that the cyber criminals, well, they're rethinking their strategy. They're thinking about their support from Russia. It's kind of interesting how a lot of criminal groups have actually started kind of pulling back a little bit because they realize, especially in the past tense here of the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, um, they're being very careful to establish non-attribution. Um, I don't want someone to know who's coming at who did this because they will they'll come back after me. You can see some of these large scale crime rings that have been put out of business recently. Um, the anonymity of the Internet is coming to an end in a lot of ways. And given how cyber attacks are becoming ubiquitous and viewed as a mem- as a component of national strategy and national security. Ha, ha, ha. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. We're just having some fun and stealing a little bit of stuff. That doesn't work as well anymore. You cross a line to where now it's not just the nation state that's trying to hack you. It's the nation state that's trying to stop you. And 
that's an interesting escalation of warfare. The payment card industry data security standard or PCI DSS has, for example, very strict requirements. With the requirements in place, we have seen credit card data breaches decline. And maybe it's because of that and maybe it's for other reasons, but it seems like PCI DSS could be deemed somewhat successful as a model. However, you can self-attest or you can bring in an outside company to attest that you are following all the rules and you get a better rate if you do so. PCI is something I'm very familiar with. I run, yeah. I used to run uh, the PCI services for a QSAC and I've been a, a, a QSA of two different types for years. Um, and the point of all of it being, it, it is a, that is a, that is an industry regular, I don't even want to call it a regulation. That is an industry requirement. That is a sectoral enforcement model. And it is great. Um, and no, offense intended to PCI council at all whatsoever. Um, whenever you self-attest or you get a rock performed, that is an attestation for a point in time. And the expectation is following that, that you will maintain that level of compliance at all times, which is a viable goal. It's also very difficult, especially, you know, you're talking PCI, you're talking about hundreds of controls across potentially hundreds of systems, thousands of systems, depending on what your scope is. And this is the same thing for the insurance model. It is becoming more and more prevalent that the insurers are coming to you and saying, show me what you do. Do you have these controls in place? Does this minimize? You know, things we've kind of talked about already, uh, EDR, XDR, MDR, all the things that we do. These are things that these companies are looking for. And these are benefits if you do it. Ensuring that you have multi-factor authentication, that your mobile strategy is solid, that you're you know, one of the big things that we're seeing now is almost every open source code library that everyone uses everywhere has multiple vulnerabilities in it. So show me as your insurer that you are doing appropriate application level DevOps security so that I know that you're not putting a broken thing into play before you even start. These all matter. And these are the kind of controls that, you know, you're talking about PCI that a standard like that would entail. The problem being in the short run, PCI is a very specific standard oriented towards systems which store, process, or transmit credit card information. That could mean so much, but it also gives you the ability to lower that scope and constrain that scope and control what your area of surface management is. When we're talking cyber insurance, I'm talking my company, all of it, my ubiquitous presence, be it whatever it could be. It's hard enough, and the PCI councils had to deal with the risk-based approach where one size does not fit all. I'm trying to achieve an outcome from a security perspective, not a specific activity. And that's taking years and multiple iterations of the DSS to come to peace with. Okay, I can name about 17 global security frameworks, pick one, and then apply it across your entire organization. It's a matter of scale. It absolutely is an idea. It absolutely is going to be something that they leverage to try and say, are you doing the following fantastic tens that I expect out of you? Because if not, no, I'm not going to insure you. Or I'm going to insure you for this much and it's going to cost you this much. These are the factors that are coming through. And yeah, uh, 
I don't feel like I've really given you a good answer from the perspective of, is it going to happen? It's already happening. But how is there going to be a, a golden standard? No, I think the insurance agencies are literally going to say, based upon breaches, we see the following security control capabilities that have the biggest effect on mitigating or minimizing the results. Get those and then come talk to me. That So rather than strict, strict control language, I think it's going to be more of a capability model. That's on the data collection side. There's also benefits to the end user, such as, well, increased privacy. Privacy requirements are going up, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, in a historical view of privacy, there was kind of the European model, which is why you have to explain to me why I should ever let you have my data. There's the U.S. model, which is you have to explain to me why I shouldn't know everything about you. And then there's the people that I call the poor squishy targets, who are the ones who are attempting to operate in both, who have to come up with, you know, fair play laws that work in either direction. Um, the European model has more respect, if you will, for the individual's rights. And that is where we're going. Um, that's what's being, I mean, you can look at CCPA and all these other things that we're talking about. That is GDPR light and it's come across the borders. <laughs> um, so we will see more. You will continue to see the concept of privacy by design um, push forward. You will see the drivers that have happened in the last couple of years, be it the breaches, be it hybrid workspace. So everyone's working from home and now my company's perimeter is this desk I've got in my house. Um, you're seeing convergence of data. So whereas it used to be sectoral health information, PII, financial data, it's all being conglomerated within that, which will again drive this. Um, you're seeing the digitization of the world. How much business do you do on your phone? That even a few years ago, you had to go into a bank and sign paperwork. And now I'm digitally signing things and sending it out. Um, the metaverse, if you will, all of this, this is all. Work has to be done on the organization side. How does that benefit organizations? Their customers, well, they're starting to notice. But from the perspective of the end user, if you will, there's more focus on protecting their data, I think, than there probably ever has been in the past. And that's a good thing. Um, it's got to change the way that we operate. You know, you've read the cybersecurity strategy that's just come out where security is being pushed onto the manufacturer. No longer is it you can throw out whatever you want to and it's on us to make it safe. No. How about secure and privacy, secure and private by design? Let, let's 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 run it that way. So there's your there's your good. There's a lot of things which are driving change, but that's not. And, you know, we're, we're talking that could appear negative, but that's no different than any other point in time in history. There's always change, which is driving evolution. We are hitting a point in time now where the cyberspace is becoming the common space because more and more of our lives are in it. And this is going to drive some outstanding changes. So staying with data leakage and privacy for a moment, I'm wondering if Chris is seeing if it's the personal information or the source material that's being taken. Is this business operations or is this still financial? The internet is a penetration test. If you are connected to the web, then someone's riding by on potentially an automated or AI-driven black horse daily attempting to steal whatever you have. And 
do people target organizations based upon what they have and the data they have? Absolutely. Go talk to anyone in the healthcare and talk about how PHI is one of the most lucrative targets that are out there. Um, go talk to any organization out there that has large amounts of IP and is someone, you know, are someone trying to steal that data daily? Yes, they are. But we can't discount the noise, which is just people trying to do things in the first place. There's absolutely targeted behavior. It, it makes the world go round and malicious use, if you will. So the hacker mindset, that is absolutely something that is more of a business now than it ever has been. I read an article the other day that was sh just sheerly depressing. And it was talking about how some of the criminal organizations that do this, who operate in places where they're not necessarily punished, they're advertising effectively on job boards and offering better pay and benefits than many of the defensive security organizations that are at it. This is a business. Um, I was reading an article earlier this morning where someone literally said there's a lot of layoffs going on in the IT space. And if someone who's a technical professional who's trying to feed their family gets laid off, that fuzzy line between which side of the law am I operating on, that gets a little bit questionable whenever you've got to eat. So right now we're in many cases as a, as an industry, are we creating our own enemy, if you will? I, I don't, I don't know how much I believe in that. I think that people that tend to stand on the white hat side will tend to stay there, but I also know that desperation causes a lot of issues and how many thousands of people have been laid off in the last couple of months? It, it th There are points to be made on either side, but do I see them attacking one more than the other? The bigger your profile, the more you're going to be targeted. And that's really the difference. Um, again, I can ride by and throw an, o an OWASP top 10 set of scripts through Metasploit at you and either pop your perimeter or not and establish in and then start trying to do, you know, all the normal fun things I would do. Absolutely. I can do that. I may be noisy when I'm doing that because I'm generically targeting you. If I'm coming at you because you have something specifically I want, you're going to be facing a you're going to be facing a significantly different skill set that's coming at you, a significantly different amount of funding. So it's both logical and illogical that these large criminal organizations would turn towards SMB. On the one hand, it makes sense. They have fewer defenses. But on the other hand, it doesn't make sense if you only get a little bit of information from each. You'd have to target a large number. We have our, our advanced threat teams and our threat hunters who work within this. Those two orgs, they work hand in hand, one being more of a centralized model and then one being more of a customer-specific threat hunting model that works within our squads and the customer environments. Um, they are absolutely monitoring everything that's going on out there. They are absolutely taking the feed, or integrating that into our platform, into our capabilities. That's, that's what's expected of someone who plays in this. That's not even an advanced capability. That's table stakes. Um, that's why you pay me money is so that I can leverage economies of scale, have more shared intelligence necessarily than you as a company want. Back to my be good at what you want to be good at. I don't necessarily want to be good at that. I want a partner who's going to do that on my behalf. And then I get the outcome of a more secure environment, a more aware environment, a better hardened infrastructure. So, yes, we pay a lot of attention to it. Um, are we involved in counter hacking and anything else like that where, you know, we're creating, no, that's not our, that's not our role in life. Our role is we're security operations. We're defensively mined. A non-security defense that would come from regulation, the general data protection regulation or GDPR question, or even CCP 
FDPA in the U.S. These are regulations that have helped call out data protection and get companies, well, to start thinking about where their data is stored and how it is managed. Without a doubt, um, you know, you, you brought up PCI before. I remember when what would become the PCI Council came in front of the National Retail Federation of the United States and said, you're going to do all this stuff to secure credit cards. And everyone laughed at them and said, we can take checks. And then a year or two later, no one had a checkbook anymore. And suddenly everyone's listening to these people. Um, the same thing has gone on about security. We've kind of come full circle. And now data is the element. It's not, we're not client server. We're not necessarily mainframe. You know, none of the, these models, we're pushing this back down to where data is the element that matters. And as a result of that, understanding the basic blocking and tackling from a security perspective, which is what are my assets? Where do they reside? What are they used for? How are they transmitted? Where is their weakness in the process? How do I handle this? Um, this is a conversation that has always been something we struggle with, but privacy, which is enabled by security, but which is not security in and of itself, it is becoming a massive driver, especially with the fines that are associated with it in pushing increased awareness on this. Because people want to? Well, yes, but also because they have to. I mean, there's you can you can take a look at the fines that have been passed um, from a global perspective. And I mean, it's no joke. Uh, billions of dollars of strife that's playing in here that, that people are starting to see. So it's absolutely driving this in. And when you realize that some, I forget who it was that said it, by 2024, 75% of the worldwide population will be protected by some sort of modern privacy regulation. This is not going away. This is blowing up. And um, 75, I do remember this one, 75% of the of uh, countries already have some sort of data localization mandate in place which means you have to know where your data goes. So it's not optional. Um, the privacy laws and everything that's pushing this out, it, it's its a requirement now. And it will drive better security because again, if you don't know where the gold is, then every place is Fort Knox. Right. It, it's just kind of what it is. And we're trying to constrain scope, apply controls for security and, and privacy in an effective manner and all this. And that involves minimizing your, your landscape as much as possible so you can do it well. I guess my point is other countries and regions have universal data protection laws. The United States doesn't have a national data protection law. Well, boy, you can't say that. Um, and you can't say that holistically. Um, a lot of the United States is still very much our privacy rules are sectoral. So they're industry specific, if you will. You can go back and look at HIPAA and things of that nature where those have been around for, you know, ever and what the privacy rules are. Um, but for the first time, effectively, we've got laws like the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, uh, ADPPA. That thing, it has not yet been passed, but it's on the boards. This is a federal data privacy law. Um, you've got... And you got flips. I mean, you used to have COPA, which is, you know, the children. Now you've got uh, COSA, which restricts what kids can see and kind of the COPA 2.0 or CTOP, uh, Children and Teens Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, these that's kind of the protects what people can do with that data. So we're seeing federal rollout uh, or consideration of laws that at a level that we've never really seen it before. And then you 
when you get down into the state levels, I mean, 10% of the states they're saying are going to be covered by privacy laws for sure in 2023. Um, and they're evolving things out. I mean, you've got, you know, you, you talked about the CCPA. It was kind of the first GDPR-ish European model privacy law put in the United States. Well, Washington came back with a counter argument in the Washington Privacy Act, um, which hasn't passed yet. Um, but a whole bunch of other states turned around and looked at that and said, I like that framework. Let me grab it and modify it. So right now uh, we've got, you know, you've got CCPA. Yeah, you've got um, the Maryland personal. you got Maryland. you got Virginia. you got Colorado. You've got Connecticut. You've got Utah. Um, you've got all these different laws that are in place. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing because that means we're back to conflicting regulations and who you have to do and what you have to do. In my past, I had a privacy breach and I had to notify across all 50 states because there's no way to win. I didn't know necessarily retail company. I didn't necessarily know who was where and what. So I had to notify across all. And you have to pick the high watermark and press it out that way because otherwise it's more expensive to do the piecemeal coverage than it would be just to necessarily treat things one way. An interesting thing that we're seeing now, though, is privacy splitting. It's not just about my virtual data, if you will. Um, another big one that's popping up right now are biometrics privacy. Um, you've got you've got Texas, Illinois, Maryland, Washington. All these places are now saying my fingerprints, my retinal scans, all this kind of stuff is every bit as critical of information as anything else. And some of these places don't have any legislation with regards to basic privacy requirements, but they do address biometrics. So we've got a lot of laws that are in various stages of in process. Um, again, the the terror point for me, GDPR came out and everyone kind of said, okay, that's the law. And we're seeing it in Europe now where localized laws are superseding GDPR. They can't necessarily make it weaker, but they can make it tougher. And that is indicative of how quickly the cyber landscape changes. Um, a law that was good, a law that just came out was written two years ago. And in, the world has evolved since then. So this thing may already be a couple of years behind. And then it's just going to continuously iterate. And if you dealt with very many people who've attempted to become compliant with GDPR or the cross-border data transfers, you know, some of the stuff that's coming out now through the, uh, the EU and the U.S. for data adequacy laws and all that, it's really hard for companies to get to good because the targets move before they've even been fully put onto the board. Perhaps what's most interesting of all is that all of this discussion around data security, well, it's taken place before, but with different elements. If you, if you look back at it, it's kind of amusing. You ask the question, if you go back far enough to the rainbow series that Department of Defense used to use when it was a mainframe based world, stop for a second and consider your question about data. That was a data security model 60 years ago, and we're coming back to it. So it's, it's, we, we've been here before. We've walked this ground. It's just evolving our tools. I'd like to thank Chris Gray for coming on the show and talking about the benefits of virtual socks, the need for cyber insurance, and other things. Small to medium businesses are, today, the target. And they lack the defenses that larger organizations have had years to build and develop. Fortunately, there are ways to distribute those defenses today, and we need to take advantage of them. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend.
I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi.